Welcome back, fellow creamsters. Um, I know this is not the voices that you are used to hearing on these episodes, but today it's just me. I appear to have fallen into the back rooms. Speaking of which, creepy pastas, what are they? Um, well, a very popular answer or re-answer would be Slenderman and, of course, the Backrooms. Um, or Jeff the Killer, if you've ever heard of him. All those are based off of stories that people have made up and shared around the internet. Of course, they've been changed over time to get creepier, creepier, gorier, gorier, however they wanted to make the uh, stories. So, it's kind of like the Wikipedia, where you can just change the definition of something whenever you want to, but it's scary stories. So, I'm going to tell three creepypastas, and let's get into the first one. The Russian Sleep Experiment Russian researchers in the late 1940s kept five people awake for 15 days using an experimental gas-based stimulant. They were kept in a sealed environment to carefully monitor their oxygen intakes so the gas didn't kill them since it was toxic in high concentrations. This was before closed-circuit cameras, so they only had microphones and five-inch thick glass porthole-sized windows into the chamber to monitor them. The chamber was stocked with books, Cots to sleep on but no bedding, running water and toilet, and enough dried food to last all five for over a month. The test subjects were political prisoners deemed enemies of the state during World War II. Everything was fine for the first five days. The subjects hardly complained, having been promised falsely that they would have been freed if they submitted to the test and did not sleep for 30 days. Their conversations and activities were monitored, and it was noted that they continued to talk about increasingly traumatic incidents in their past, and the general tone of their conversations took on a darker aspect after the four-day mark. After five days, they started to complain about the circumstances and events that led them to where they were and started to demonstrate severe paranoia. They stopped talking to each other and began alternately whispering to the microphones and one-way mirrored portholes. Oddly, they all seemed to think they could win the trust of the experimenters by turning over their comrades, the other subjects in captivity with them. At first, the researchers suspected that this was an effect of the gas itself. After nine days, the first of them started screaming. He ran the length of the chamber, repeatedly yelling at the top of his lungs for three hours straight. He continued attempting to scream, but was only able to produce occasional squeaks. The researchers postulated that he had physically torn his vocal cords. The most surprising thing about this behavior is how the other captives reacted to it. Or rather, didn't react to it. They continued whispering to the microphones until the second of the captives started to scream. The two non-screaming captives took the books apart, smeared the page after page with their own feces, and pasted them calmly over the glass portholes. The screaming promptly stopped. So did the whispering to the microphones. After three more days passed, the researchers checked the microphones hourly to make sure they were working since they thought it's impossible that no sound could be coming with five people inside. 
The oxygen consumption in the chamber indicated that all five must still be alive. In fact, it was the amount of oxygen five people would consume at a very heavy level of a strenuous exercise. On the morning of the 14th day, the researchers did something they said they would not do to get a reaction from the captives. They used the intercom inside the chamber, hoping to provoke any response from the captives. They were afraid were either dead or vegetables. They announced... We are opening the chamber to test the microphone. Step away from the door and lie flat on the floor or you will be shot. Compliance will earn one of you your immediate freedom. To their surprise, they heard a single phrase in a calm voice response. We no longer want to be freed. Debate broke out among the researchers and the military forces funding the research. Unable to provoke any more response using the intercom, it was finally decided to open the chamber at midnight on the 15th day. The chamber was flushed to the stimulant gas and filled with fresh air, and immediately voices from the microphones began to object. Three different voices began begging, as if pleading for the life of loved ones to turn the gas back on. The chamber was opened, and the soldiers sent in to retrieve the test subjects. They began to scream louder than ever, and so did the soldiers when they saw what was inside. Four of the five subjects were still alive, although no one could rightly call the state that any of them in life. The food rations past five days had not been so much as touched. There were chunks of meat from the dead test subjects' thighs and chest stuffed into the drain in the center of the chamber, blocking the drain and allowing four inches of water to accumulate on the floor. Precisely how much of the water on the floor was actually blood was never determined. All four surviving test subjects also had large portions of muscle and skin torn away from their bodies. The destruction of flesh and exposed bone on their fingertips indicated the wounds were inflicted by hand, not with teeth, as researchers initially thought. Closer examination of the position and angles of the wounds indicated that most of them, if not all of them, were self-inflicted. The abdominal organs below the ribcage of all four test subjects had been removed while the heart, lungs, and diaphragm remained in place. The skin and most of the muscles attached to the ribs had been ripped off, exposing the lungs through the ribcage. All the blood vessels and organs remained intact. They had just been taken out and laid on the floor, fanning out around the eviscerated but still living bodies of the subjects. The digestive tract of all four could see be seen to be working, digesting food. It quickly became apparent that what they were digesting was their own flesh that they had ripped off and eaten over the course of days. Most of the soldiers were Russian special operatives at the facility, but still many refused to return to the chamber to remove the test subjects. They continued to scream to be left in the chamber and alternately begged and demanded that the gas be turned back on, lest they fall asleep. To everyone's surprise, the test subjects put up a fierce fight in the process of being removed from the chamber. One of the Russian soldiers died from having his throat ripped out. Another was gravely injured by having his testicles ripped off and an artery in his legs severed by one of the subjects' teeth. Another five of the soldiers lost their lives if you count the ones that committed suicide in the weeks following the incident. In the struggle, one of the four living subjects had, had his spleen ruptured and he bled out almost immediately. The medical researchers attempted to sedate him, but this proved impossible. He was injected with more than ten times the human dose of morphine of a morphine derivative and still fought like a cornered animal, breaking the ribs and arm of one doctor. When his heart had 
It seemed to beat for a full two minutes after he had bled out to the point where there was more air in his vascular system than blood. Even after it stopped, he continued to scream and flail for another three minutes, struggling to attack anyone in reach and just repeating the word more over and over, weaker and weaker, until he finally fell silent. The surviving three test subjects were heavily restrained and moved to a medical facility, the two with intact vocal cords continuously begging for the gas demanding to be kept awake. The most injured of the three was taken to the only surgical operating room that the facility had. In the process of preparing the subject to have his organs placed back within his body, it was found that he was effectively immune to the sedative they had given to him to prepare for this, him for the surgery. He fought furiously against his restraints when the anesthetic gas was brought out to put him under. He managed to tear most of the way through a four-inch wide leather strap on one wrist, even though the weight of the 200-pound soldier was holding that wrist as well. It only took him a little more anesthetic than normal to put him under, and the instant his eyelids fluttered, fluttered and closed, his heart stopped. In the autopsy of the test subject that died on the operating table, it was found that his blood had tripled the normal level of oxygen. His muscles that were still attached to his skeleton were badly torn, and he had broken nine bones in his struggle not to be subdued. Most of them were from his f the force of his own muscles had exerted on them. The second survivor had been the first group of five to start screaming. His vocal cords destroyed and he was unable to beg or object to surgery, and he only reacted by shaking his head violently in disapproval when the anesthetic gas was brought near him. He shook his head yes when someone suggested reluctantly they try the surgery without anesthetic and did not react for the entire six-hour procedure of replacing his abdominal organs and attempting to cover them with what remained of his skin. The surgeon presiding stated repeatedly that it should be medically impossible for the patient to still be alive. One terrified nurse assisting the surgery stated that she had seen the patient's mouth curl into a smile several times whenever his eyes met her. When, when the surgery ended, the subject looked at the surgeon and began to wheeze loudly, attempting to talk while struggling. Assuming this must be something of drastic importance, the surgeon had a pen and pad fetched so the patient could write his message. It was simple. Keep cutting. The other two test subjects were given the same surgery, both without anesthetic as well, although they had to be injected with a paralytic for the duration of the operation. The surgeon found it impossible to perform the operation while the patients laughed continuously. Once paralyzed, the subjects could only follow the attending researchers with their eyes. The paralytics cleared their system in an abnormally short period of time and were soon trying to find soon blah, were soon trying to escape their bonds the moment they could speak they were asking for the stimulant gas the researchers tried asking why they had injured themselves why they had ripped out their own guts and why they wanted to be given the gas again only one response was given i must remain awake Abandoned by Disney Some of you may have heard that the Disney Corporation is responsible for at least one real live ghost town. Disney built the Treasure Island Resort in Baker's Bay on, in the Bahamas. It didn't start as a ghost town. Disney's cruise ships would actually stop at the resort and leave tourists there to relax and luxury. 
This is a fact. Look it up. Disney blew $30 million on the place. Yes. $30 million. Then they abandoned it. Disney blamed the shallow waters, too shallow for their ships to safely operate, and there was even blame cast on the workers. Saying that since they were from the Bahamas, they were too lazy to work a regular schedule. That's where the factual nature of the story ends. It wasn't because of sand, and it obviously wasn't because of foreigners are lazy. Both are convenient excuses. No, I sincerely doubt those reasons were legitimate. Why don't I buy the official story? Because of Mowgli's Palace. <laughs> Near the beachside city of Emerald Isle in North Carolina, Disney began construction of Mowgli's Palace. In the late 1990s, the concept was a jungle-themed resort with a large, you guessed it, palace in the center of the whole thing. If you're unfamiliar with the character Mowgli, then you might better remember the story The Jungle Book. If you haven't seen it anywhere else, you'd know it as a Disney cartoon from decades past. Mowgli is an abandoned child in the jungle, essentially raised by animals and simultaneously threatened pursued by other animals. Mowgli's Palace is a controversial undertaking from the start. Disney brought up a ton of high-priced land for the project and there was actually a scandal surrounding some of the purchases. The local government claimed the eminent domain on people's homes, then turned around and sold the properties to Disney. At one point, a home that had just been constructed was immediately condemned with little to no explanation. The land grabbed by the government was supposed, supposedly for some fictional highway project. Knowing full well what was going on, people started to call it the Mickey Mouse Highway. And there was a concept art. A group of stuffed shirts from Disney Co. actually held a city meeting. They intended to sell everyone on how lucrative this project was going to be for everyone. When they showed the concept art, this gigantic Indian palace surrounded by jungle, staffed with men and women in lion cloths and tribal gear, well suffice to say everyone flipped their crap. We're talking about a large Indian palace, jungle, and lion cloths, not only in the center of a relatively wealthy area, but also somewhat of a xenophobic area of the southern USA. It was a questionable mix at that point in history. One member of the crowd tried to storm the stage, but he was quickly subdued by the security after he managed to break one of the presentation boards over his knee. Disney took that community and essentially broke it over its knee as well. Houses were raised, the land was cleared, and there wasn't a damned thing anyone could do or say about it. Local TV and newspapers were against the report at the beginning. But some insane connection between Disney's media holdings and the local venues came into play, and their opinions turned on a dime. So anyway, Treasure Island, the Bahamas, Disney sunk those millions and, and then split. The same thing happened with Mowgli's Palace. Construction was complete. Visitors actually stayed at the resort. The surrounding communities were flooded with traffic and the usual annoyances associated with an influx of lost and irate tourists. Then it all just stopped. Disney shut it down and nobody knew what the heck to think. But they were pretty happy about it. Disney's loss was pretty hilarious and wonderful 
to a large group of folks who didn't want this in the first place. I honestly didn't give the place another thought since hearing it close over a decade ago. I lived maybe four hours from Emerald Isle, so I only heard the rumblings and the experience of it firsthand. Then I read this article from someone who had explored the Treasure Island Resort and posted a whole blog about the crazy stuff he'd found there. Stuff just left behind. Things smashed, defaced, probably ruined by the disgruntled former employees who had lost their jobs. The locals from all around probably just had a hand wrecking that place. People there felt just as angry about Treasure Island as folks here did about Mowgli's Palace. Plus, there were rumors that Disney had released their aquarium stock into local waters when they were closed, including sharks. Who wouldn't want to take a few swings at some merchandise after that? Well, what I'm getting is that this blog about Treasure Island got me thinking. Even though many years had passed since its closing, I figured it might be cool to do some urban exploration at Mowgli's Palace. Take some photos, write about my experience, and probably see if there was anything I could take home as a memento. I'm not going to say I wasted no time in getting there, because honestly, it took me another year to f- after I first found the Treasure Island article to get around going up to Emerald Isle. Over the course of that year, I did a lot of research on the Palace Resort, or rather, I tried to. Naturally, no official Disney site or resource made any mention of the place that had been scrubbed clean. Even odder, however, was that nobody before myself had apparently thought to blog about the place or even post a photo. No, the local TV or newspaper sites had one word about the place. Oh, that was to be expected since they had all swung Disney's way. They wouldn't be out there lauding their embarrassment, you know. Recently, I learned that corporations can actually ask Google, for example, to remove links from search results, basically for no good reason. Looking back, it's probably not that nobody spoke of the resort, but rather their words were made inaccessible. So in the end, I could barely find the place. All I had, all I had to go back on was an old as heck map and I'd receive in the mail back in the 1990s. It was a promotional item sent out to people who had recently been to Disney World and I guess since I'd been there in the late 80s, that was recent. I didn't really intend to hang on to it. I just shoved, in, I just shoved it in with my books and comics from my childhood. I'd only remembered it months into my research and then it took me another few weeks to locate the storage bin my parents had shoved it all into. But I did find it. Locals were no help, as most were transplants who had moved to the beach in recent years, or old residents who just sneered at me and made rude gestures the second I managed to say, where would I find Mowgli's? The drive took me through an inordinately long corridor of overgrowth. Tropical plants that had run rampant and overpopulated the area mixed with the native species of flora that actually belonged there and had tried to reclaim the land. I was in awe when I reached the front gates of the resort, tremendous monolithic wooden gates whose supports on either side looked like they must have been cut from giant sequoias. 
The gate itself had been gouged in several places by woodpeckers and eaten away at the base by burrowing insects. Hanging on the gate was a sheet of metal, some random scrap with hand-painted letters scrawled in black, abandoned by Disney. Well, that is all the creepypastas we have for you tonight. A big thank you to Anchor for providing us with the music and sound effects that we use in this episode. Join us next week for multiple episodes. Don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but hey, we're working on it. You know what you got to do. Stay creamy.